0: Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? What's up? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good because um, this week I don't think there were any stories about the Rogers family that was, like, pushed to my phone, <laughs> forcing me to read about things that I could care less <laughs> about. God. Is it over? You could care less? Is it, like, I, I truly i couldn't care less. you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> i was like i don't know if you could care less i couldn't care less yeah i is it over do you know i really haven't read any of the stories is it done Can I, we I don't know Are you about them? Me? you're more connected <laughs> to
1: english canadian media than i am i have no idea <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh they're not being featured in
1: french language media we have our own uh, family of mystery and intrigue, and it's the Pelado family, and they have not been in the news in the last like six months.
0: Hmm. Well, lucky you. <laughs> okay, listeners, guess what? Also, you, Nora. <laughs> uh-huh. Sandy and Nora is the runner up for best podcast in Toronto, according to Now Magazine. Aw. That's so nice. That's the first thing that we've ever won. Isn't that great? I think that's really wonderful. And the thing that's the most great about it is if they had done it correctly and had two separate categories, one for fiction and one for nonfiction, we would be number one (laughs) for next time. That's a good point. That's a good
1: point. And um, I want to congratulate the the real winner whose podcast name I... The
0: Parkdale Hunt. Ah, there you go.
1: You know, I thought it was a bit funny that we um, are winning a Best Podcast Runner Up Prize in Toronto, but... Sandy, do you know how many people listen to our podcast from Toronto? Um, a lot. The most? Is it the most? Yeah, the most of, of any Canadian city. Um, just to put this in perspective, in the last six months, 51,000 people from Toronto have tuned in. And the next city, uh, I don't know if you want to try and guess. Um, the next city, Mississauga? No. <laughs> <laughs> Ottawa. <laughs> no, Ottawa's like fourth. No, it's Vancouver, and 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 oh, that's really? at seventeen thousand. It's seventeen thousand, so more than double uh, than uh, people, more than double uh, listeners are listening in Toronto. So, thank you so much for considering. I
0: guess that's where the votes came from. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thanks for considering us to be a part of you. And I mean, I can also just maybe shout out some other cities. Um, you know, New Westminster, where six hundred eight people listened, and. Uh, You know, Milton, Ontario, went went to high school. Um, Sorry, that place sucks. Everybody, uh, 442 people. You know, I get to look at this stuff. It's kind of neat. So um, Langley, uh, Langley, BC, the 385 of you folks listening, um, you know, you can also nominate us for your city's best podcast too, because there's a bunch of you listening. Like, that's cool. Thank you so much. I'm kidding. You don't have to do this stuff. Thank you so, so much. And Sandy, do you know what? We also hit a, a milestone this past week. Oh, we did? What's the milestone? We have surpassed 800,000 listeners of Sandy and Nora.
0: What? That is amazing. Wow. That's a lot of listeners. That is that's amazing. a lot of Sandy and Nora. <laughs> well, Thank you all for tuning in. (laughs) Sorry that we swear so much, but not that sorry. No, I'm not sorry for that at all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's do some more gratefulness. Let's do some more thanking. Yes. We have a whole bunch of people to thank who've donated for the first time or
1: who've changed their donation. And so this week uh, we want to say thank you so, so, so much to Justin, Nick, Ashwin, Vlada, Kate, and then a different Kate. I checked to make sure that these were two different Kates, and they are. And so we're saying, hey to you both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Hannah, thank you so much. Okay, Nora. So I've been listening to the news, and, you know, it kind of feels like two things are happening at the same time with respect to this pandemic. It feels like um, – the officials, at least, uh, I mean, I'm seeing this both in Canada and the US. The officials are starting to get a little bit nervous again, as though there is going to be some sort of spike. And at the same time, it seems like um, there's a this tension around a lot of things starting to relax. And still this question of what we do to solve this impending spike and whether that should include vaccine mandates? Are you seeing the same sort of thing?
1: Yeah, and and as the cases like continue to circulate, uh, I'm seeing the rise in some parts of Canada, like in Manitoba, where uh, the people who are vaccinated and people who are unvaccinated are kind of making up almost equal percentages of, of who's getting sick. Um, Not exactly equal, not 50-50, but like pretty close between unvaccinated and vaccinated. Now, the vaccines, they reduce the the transmission rate. And so that's really, really important to to mention. And when you have people working in close quarters or whatever, of course, COVID is going to continue to circulate. But the vaccines are majorly slowing death. And the severity of COVID, um, and that's really important to, to note, because when you look at who is in the hospital, who's in ICU, and who has died, that is disproportionately people who uh, were not adequately vaccinated, which is which is the two doses. But yeah, it seems like it, it, things are... You know, we're hearing brace for the the fourth wave, or or will you know that's Ontario messaging, or will there be a fifth wave in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba in the fourth wave. I mean, the Maritimes and Newfoundland, Labrador are just fucking loving it still. New Brunswick had a big spike and they're back down, but you know it's really important to to note that. There there seems to be this common refrain that we're, that we're, I mean, seems to be, there is, that we're hearing all the time. And I looked at the national numbers and they're actually like pretty low. Like they're, they're low uh, cases per 100,000 people relative to where they have been in the last six weeks, or the last two months, uh, with a couple of exceptions. So Yukon is the hotspot and they've got... Uh, you know, in the mid-300s of cases uh, per uh, 100,000 residents, which is uh, very high for Yukon. And then on reserve, it's still much higher than the national average. It's 167, I think, cases per 100,000 people, but that's still lower than it's been. So not acceptable, but at least, you know, an improvement. But then you have situations like in Nunavik, which is northern Quebec, where they have... uh, 1,701 cases per 100,000 people, which if you translate that into the city of Toronto, that'd be like 50,000 cases active. Wow. And we're not hearing these numbers in the national news. Everything kind of gets lumped together. And there's always this, oh, it's always getting better. It's getting worse. Oh, it's getting better. And it's like, Okay, but we're all vaccinated. How could it even possibly get worse? And then you look at Germany where they've got more cases now than they've ever had during this pandemic. And you think, oh, my God, it's like how? How? Except their vaccine rate is 66 percent and it's not even. Right. So there's pockets of large pockets of unvaccinated individuals. So there's a lot of context missing to these numbers. And I think that it just continues to make people feel anxious and as if this is just never going to end.
0: It does feel that way uh, in some ways that this is never going to end. And or that we've uh, perhaps, you know, the way that we've dealt with this pandemic, we're just moving into a new normal because what does end really mean in this context now? A lot of people are slowly returning back to work or slowly returning back to school if they're not back already, but there are these new rules. And it seems like maybe that, might be a constant for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, I think that that's probably fair. And, and, you know, it's, it's also important for people to keep in mind that if we had not tried to control the the, the spread of the virus in the way that we did, it probably would be over by now, and our death toll would be way higher. And so there has been a lot of of um need a uh, reliance on people's solidarity to obey the rules and do what they can to slow the spread of the virus which has inevitably pushed it to be longer right because it has not circulated through as many people but the upside of that is we have saved lives um and so you know we should probably also take some solace in that and you know, Sandy, I had my first exposure at my at soccer this past uh, week, which was quite. Oh my God! Someone on my team had COVID.
0: Wow! <laughs> so, oh
1: no! Yeah. Are they all? Right? Yeah, again, I think that they're okay. I, th- I haven't heard. I haven't heard that anything's bad, and I think no news is good news with this kind of thing. Um, and there hasn't seemed to be any cases as a result. Um, but, and we're all double vaccinated and everything. Um, but you know, it's a good, it's a good reminder that, that, yeah, we, we are going to be living with this and we have to find a way to feel good about it. But that vaccine mandate, oh my God, the, the mandate in, in, in non-essential aspects of our lives. So in, in, in this case, to, to know that I'm playing soccer with and against people who are double vaxxed, that, that is really important. I think that makes me feel like, I'm surrounded by people who take this seriously, who are not going to be recklessly spreading it. And then in this case, you know, we were all in the change room together before and after the game. I mean, on the field, I'm not totally sure how much there's a risk of, of transmission. But certainly in the change room, we're not masked when we're getting dressed and getting undressed. Yeah, I think that the double vaccine de- uh, mandate definitely helped <laughs> to, to stop anything that may have spread.
0: Yeah, the vaccine mandates, I mean, yeah, they definitely help. I, you know, at the beginning of the year um, when we started school uh, and the undergrad started, I looked out at the crowd (laughs) during orientation and was like, oh, we're all fucked here. That's great. (laughs) There's there's no way that this is going to be safe. But actually, my concerns haven't really borne out. It's been, you know, they have the... The whole campus, um, is under a vaccine mandate and you cannot come to class. You cannot come to work unless you are, uh, double vaxxed and you must be wearing a mask and you are, I mean, they initially had a rule that everyone needed to test every week. Um, but they, they removed that rule pretty quickly into the school year, um, because the tests that we were using were these spit tests that they said were gave a lot of false positives, which made me quite nervous. But it turns out (laughs) that it's fine Um, because, uh, you know, the concern hasn't really borne out. Now, i we've been getting notices every day at the law school um, that there is a new person who has COVID. And I, you know, keeps thinking to myself, that seems like an outbreak, but um, the contact tracing that they're doing is saying that all of the people um, who uh, are testing positive didn't, weren't exposed at the school. And so, and you know, testing has been going well for, for people who are coming to class. So I don't, I don't know, it seems like things are okay.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting is we're getting to this point now where um, vaccination rates are getting to be quite high. Um, I ran this these numbers last night and in the past two months, there's been a lot of, of change uh, within vaccination rates um, in some parts of Canada. Uh, parts of Canada with the highest change in vaccination rates are the far north in Saskatchewan, which is really important because that's a location where there's been some very worrying outbreaks. Followed by the north, this is the region of the north in, in, in Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta's north, Alberta's center, Lanaudière region um, in, in Quebec, Laval. These are places that really had low vaccination rates. And in the last two months, they've had the biggest change uh, in, 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 in vaccination, which is really great. The places, of course, with the smallest change were places that were starting from like really high rates of vaccination in, in most cases. So like Yukon and Montreal and Gaspé-Z, uh, Ile-de-la-Madeleine, Quebec City. Um, and then you have Nunavik, which I've already mentioned. Uh, their their vaccine rates haven't changed in two, two months much or at all. I mean, the numbers are actually a little bit hard to understand from the National Institute of Public Health um, data, but... That's a place where vaccination was quite low, and um, and they're now in a massive outbreak, um, as I mentioned earlier. And so, you know, looking at these numbers, the biggest chunk of people who are unvaccinated by far are, are children. And I'm, I'm, you know, what's so fascinating is the way that politicians are talking about vaccine mandates is that th- that this is the way to end the the, the pandemic, that the vaccine is still being pushed as the way to end the pandemic in the way that it was being pushed last year at this time when the vaccines were just being approved as the way to end the pandemic. And, you know, staring at these numbers, staring at uh, the fact that fewer and fewer and fewer people are going to be getting vaccinated from now on. I mean, there will obviously still be more people and public health needs to be doing that targeted outreach. What's interesting is that you've got the federal government has made it very clear that they're not going to put in a vaccine mandate from the government side. And we can talk about whether or not that made sense or or that's, that doesn't make sense. But instead, what they did was they've downloaded the responsibility onto employers and onto non-essential services. And there's a limit to this because, Sandy, I don't know if you saw in the last couple of weeks, but... Just as Quebec's mandate was um, about to be enforced, so you know healthcare workers had all this time and they had to get vaccinated. And we're at ninety seven percent vaccinated; it's
0: really, really high. They canceled the mandate. I did not see that. Yeah, I, th- I think I heard something similar happened in Ontario, though, right? They keep pushing back the mandate for for workers in long term care. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And so in Quebec, what happened was they looked at where the lowest rates of vaccination are and where the highest opposition to it is, and they looked at the numbers and they realized that they couldn't impose the mandate without having like healthcare services massively impacted. And we're already like running on a threat. Like there's already emergency rooms all across this province that have to be shut down routinely. Uh, obstetric wards being closed and, and people being told that they have to give birth like far away and all this kind of stuff. So this is this is like the context. Mm. And so now we have a situation where it's like, I have to be double vaxxed to play soccer, but the the nurse or the or the personal care worker or the doctor who's, who's coming to save my life doesn't have to be double vaxxed. Right, And I'm not sure society is ready to deal with that kind of cognitive dissidence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. What a weird public health conundrum to be under. What, what side of this argument do you fall down on? Like, do you think that they shouldn't have pulled the vaccine mandate and they should have enforced it? And, you know, with the consequence of, of not being able to, um, Properly service or the other side. I have been more and more convinced that the
1: mandate's power was in threatening people and not so much in actually enforcing it. Because the way, like when it's been downloaded to employers, what that means is now employers, unions, employees are all the ones who are who have to like deal with the refusals are going to be wrapped up in court cases, and it's going to push people into like very extreme and weird positions. And you know, clearly, there's some circumstances where the government has to just say, "Whoa, like we're going to blank because we need to have this emergency room open." And and it's like, how has this not been the obvious outcome from their perspective? not from the average person's perspective. I think that this stuff is all pretty high level and it isn't necessarily something that everybody should be paying attention to. But how do you not think that this is going to be the natural result if you don't impose a mandate from the state saying every single person needs to get vaccinated or else have a good reason why they're not being vaccinated?
0: Right, right. I see what you're saying. Although I will say that I do think that for these employers, it's not necessarily the case that they're out of the woods with respect to lawsuits because if people can somehow prove that their employers made them less safe by not taking the action that they needed to take to make all the employers safe, that that could could be something that they have to worry about. I'm not sure, but I I see what you're saying. Like, um, Had the government just done this in the first place instead of uh, downloading this, perhaps it would have been different, but I see, you know, you know, I think I'm with you on this because initially when you, when we spoke briefly before the show and you said um, uh, that this is what you wanted to talk about, I was like, Oh, are we going to disagree on the air? But I think I see what you're talking <laughs> because we barely ever do. Uh, I see what you're talking about. Like um, that makes sense. It is. And like, with the the threat and versus the enforcement but i do worry about what that means for everybody else um who who is um you know forced to work under circumstances that may be less safe yeah yeah of course
1: yeah, and so what what I've been so fascinated by is that the conversation is just about the mandates. Just about the mandates. Teachers need to be mandated, public service workers need to be mandated, blah blah blah. The, and and the the space that the mandate discussion and debate has taken up has actually erased any location for us to have a conversation about, okay, so what do we do with unvaccinated people within society? Like In general, right, because because the argument about being safe is going to be the case at the supermarket, at the, you know, the doctor's office, in a hospital, like in these locations where you cannot deny someone service if they come in and
0: they're unvaccinated. But so then the question becomes, well, you can, you can, but currently, no, is what you're saying. I I mean, can you?
1: I mean, like, even if like the only thing that we have with a, a mandate that is firm is like measles. And even still, I don't think you could refuse like health care service. Could you?
0: Oh, health care service. I thought you were talking about the groceries and, and so on that you were just referring to. Well, even that, though, because they wouldn't be checking. Right. They wouldn't know. Well, I'm not sure. I think they might be. I'm. I, uh, they're checking here. um For very many places that you go, not necessarily grocery stores anymore, but they're checking to see if you're vaccinated. I think that's a possibility.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. The the reality, though, is that without the state mandating a 100 percent coverage of vaccines, this was always going to happen. And so then the question is, like, how do you manage people who are unvaccinated? And and of course, the, the, the anti-vax world is all like, oh, my God, they're going to like start lining us up against the wall and shooting us and all this kind of like conspiracy stuff. But it's actually a really interesting question. It's like so you have a situation where there's incredible coverage of the vaccine and that incredible coverage protects people who are unvaccinated that protects children for now. Well, obviously, you know, in a couple of weeks, um, five to 11-year-olds will be able to be vaccinated, and that's great. That will even provide more protection to younger people because these are all community things, right? But, like... Why is there no discussion about, OK, so in a hospital setting, how do you rearrange staff to make sure that you don't have a pocket of like five unvaccinated people working together? Because one unvaccinated person in a whole room of vaccinated people is not going to be as dangerous as like an entire shift of unvaccinated workers. Do you know what I mean? Is that
0: is that true?
1: Yes, because the vaccine um Now, I mean, there's a lot of like guesses on how much the vaccine um, impacts uh, spread, but the vaccine, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, reduces spread by some amount. I've seen 30 percent to 60 percent. I think it's probably fair to say we're not exactly sure. And so you can imagine you've got like 10 people and they're all double vaccinated and one person has covid The odds that it's transmitting to other people is pretty low. When you add a second unvaccinated person into that mix, then you have two people who are spreading it, and then then you start to have a a pocket, right? Then you actually start to have a situation on your hands that that is less safe. Um, And then you know you can you can grow this to a city, right, or a town. So like the town of Almer in Ontario, which is the home of the police college and a whole bunch of freaky anti-COVID or pro-COVID, I guess, churches. (laughs) And so they've just got this explosion Mm -hmm. of cases. And there's so many cases um, all across Canada that are coming out of especially religious group um, meetings or, or services or whatever whatever where there's a large population of people who are unvaccinated, right? So so it is it is really and then of course children. Children are, are have emerged as the driving force of the pandemic, where that was not the case in the first um in the first year or year and a half, right? So, like, why don't we know about this more? Why is there no discussion about managing unvaccinated populations um, and not just from the perspective of, well, they have to get vaccinated? Because we have to, this is, there's no national mandate for 100% vaccination. We have to accept the fact that there will be people who will not get vaccinated. And we can hate that and we can disagree with that and we can call them whatever we want to call them for whatever reason they're they're, they're refusing but it doesn't change the fact that there will be people within society who don't get vaccinated.
0: Yeah, I mean this is a this is a hard question because um I think once if that becomes uh, accepted uh that the vaccine mandates have done what they can do and there is no usefulness beyond implementing one and I want to say like we're in wildly different contexts here. I'm <laughs> in the United States and I'm just like you know, the numbers are not what they look like in Canada uh, in terms of how many people have been vaccinated. Um, uh, Definitely nowhere near. Uh, But I, you know, what you're talking about sounds like um, the most the safest thing to do to move forward. But I wonder socially how it's going to work because what it would require is the ability for people to have a conversation about who in a particular workplace is vaccinated and who is not. And as we know right now, um, that question uh, is fueling a lot of anxiety from a lot of people whose fears have been really whipped up. And so we might want to say, um, Okay, in this high school, or in this hospital, or in this um, this clinic, this is how we're going to organize our folks to try to make it as safe as possible. But that, how, how does one consider the likelihood, um, the very real likelihood that there will be people who have serious questions about disclosure?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and one of the ways you have to manage that is through rapid testing, which has just been such a, a, a complete disaster in this country. Like, I don't know how much access you have to rapid tests, but, you know, in Nova Scotia, where they have done such a good job to control COVID, uh, it seems like rapid testing has become – rapid testing is a critical part of how they've managed it, right? So people have access to rapid tests, and and they're easy to to do. Uh. I was in Ottawa this past week, and I heard that you can get rapid tests from Shoppers Drug Mart um, because of this relationship between, like, Doug Ford and Galen Weston, the owner of Shoppers, who's also the owner of Loblaws, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I was on the road, so I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if I had a rapid test? Because in Quebec, I mean, I have no idea where to get them. The school apparently is giving them out to to kids, except, I mean, in Quebec City, we have a school with a 106-person outbreak right now. And um, my kid's class last week, <laughs> apparently there was like all these like kids throwing up and stuff. And I mean, this is normal kid stuff. Oh
0: my God. It's normal kid
1: stuff. It's, that's not super uh, <laughs> odd. But when I was like, oh, did you guys get rapid tested? If
0: you say so.
1: It, it really, it sucks, but it's it's actually kind of normal. <laughs> <laughs> my kid was like, no, no, we don't. We didn't get rapid tested. So it's like, okay, so I don't really know what the regime here is about for the rapid tests, but... So I walked into the shoppers in Ottawa and I'm like, hey, I'm just wondering if I could buy a rapid test or five so that I have them. And the first thing they said to me was, are you a business?
0: And I oh, was like, no.
1: yeah. And I was like, I am a business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Facts. Uh, fact. And then they, they were like, oh, no. I mean, then you'd have to just take the test here. It's not something you can buy, right? It, 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 like this, this is the kind of thing that, that gets thrown to the wayside when we take up so much time imagining that the vaccine is going to be what saves us. And I, I I mean, I don't know. What's it like in L.A.? Like, do you do you have access to rapid tests? Is this something I mean, you said that at the school they were expecting that until
0: they realized it was a bit too much. They weren't very rapid, those tests. But I mean, you could get the you got the results within a day. Um But I mean, I was driving to school the other day and there was a bunch of tents set up outside the mall that said rapid test for free with a bunch of really bored people sitting at them. So it seems (laughs) like it is it's pretty simple to get these rapid tests. And I think that that's a crucial point, not just because, uh, you know, we have this kind of vaccinated folks and unvaccinated folks, but also because as we are now seeing the vaccine efficacy seems to wane, and if the vaccine efficacy wanes, then you know there's also going to be um, a, a growing number of people that become more vulnerable to uh, transmission, even though the symptoms that they get won't be that bad. That is still dangerous, of course, because they can then transmit it to somebody else. And for that population as well, um, you know, as long as we're in this place where boosters aren't universally available, for that population as well, you're going to need to use tests to, again, um, uh, be a, a strong tool that we have in managing what's going on. I think that one of the, the ways that has
1: been very uh, clever um, mandating non-essential services, I think, was was absolutely crucial to up the, the vaccine rates that we have in this country. And that that's something that I don't think should, should fall uh, by the wayside, I think. You know, I know a lot of people that were just not just hadn't gotten around to getting vaccinated until they had to get vaccinated to go to a concert or to play sports or whatever. And the non-essential vaccine mandate also, you know, rewards those of us who got vaccinated. And, um, you know, rather than kind of keeping everybody in this weird holding pattern while, you know, we're all vaccinated, but we still can't really do stuff. Um, and, and there's no reward, like there's no reason to say to someone, this is why you would do it. So I think that that's been really clever, but I I don't know, like looking into the the winter as we're all going to be uh, staying more indoors and the virus will definitely continue to circulate. And then of course, you know, RSV is back, which is a respiratory virus that, um, is, is especially uh, dangerous for young children. And the flu will obviously be back too. You know, it, it's it's so fascinating to just see how much of a bait and switch the whole vaccine discussion really has been to hide two very crucial things. One, that our healthcare system's actually fucked, right? Like this, this whole discussion goes back to the fact that they can't have a 100% vaccine mandate within the healthcare system because it would not be able to function oh my god um and and then two, uh like vaccine inequity around the world and how the global circulation of covid still has a direct like impact on us you know one of the things that i felt so surprised by in april and may so i didn't get my first dose until may 17th and, um, of course, you know, that had, that was quite a while after they started to, to vaccinate people, um, in Quebec, but th- the, the, amount of safety that the unvaccinated experienced as people were getting vaccinated was just so, it was such a surprise to me that by the time I actually did get my vaccine, it was like, oh no, cases are st- are, are dropping and people around me are getting vaccinated and it's re- reducing the the transmission of this, of this virus. This is really good news. And then, you know, because we're then on this cycle of up and down and up and down, I think it's really easy to lose your 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 kind of uh, perspective on where we really are and just how much the vaccines have worked and are good. Mm. (laughs) Um, Which then also poses a problem, too, because there's a whole bunch of people who are being protected by the vaccine who are not vaccinated,
0: which is a problem.
1: Well, because then they have no no need to get vaccinated because then they're like, well, I'm not going to get COVID. It's like, well, you're not going to get COVID because your entire freaking town has been vaccinated. And you should thank everyone for that rather than being a dick, <laughs> for example.
0: I mean, I don't know that that's a a problem, though. That's kind of the way that these vaccine, I mean, these sorts of things are supposed to work, right? Because yeah, yeah. the likelihood that you can get 100% vaccination um, is is very low. Um, but Uh, I think, you know, you raise a really important question about the global context. And that's a piece that I think um, is going to become more and more important. You know, there is uh, a vaccine apartheid happening, essentially, where, you know, I was just mentioned a second ago, boosters um, and whether they will be universally accessible. Clearly, I mean in countries like the United States and Canada because some places still haven't been able to distribute um, the first and second shots in the same way that clearly countries in the global north has. That is going to have an impact on how long this um, pandemic continues to impact us and it's going to have a um, differential impact on who gets uh, harmed the most from it. As people start to travel again, um, this is going to become more and more of an issue. And this, the way that this is rolling out, I think um, one of the, the deep implications are not just for this pandemic, but for the next pandemic and even beyond that, issues that impact our health and how they are looked after, at which are going to grow as the climate crisis deepens it's just it's it's not looking good. what this is foreboding is i think what we all intrinsically know um but there's something that we i mean we have to do something about this we We must shift the way the ways that our governments are um in it for themselves when it comes to these huge global health problems um for which there is no individual or being here for ourselves we're all impacted.
1: Yeah, but there's quite a conundrum in that, you know, Canada's high rate of vaccination shows just how popular vaccines were and and we like we're an outlying country um, compared to certainly our peers. I mean, look at the United States just as a, as one example. And in that lies a political necessity. To flood Canada with vaccines, which is what happened from the Liberal Party. And I've been really struggling with how do you untie the fact that Canadians wanted to be vaccinated, were hungry for vaccines, uh, lined up around the block to get them. I've, I've seen a lot of people being like, I'm really doing okay, but I'll be elbowing my way to the front of the line for my kids next week or in two weeks, whenever they get the approval or, you know, whatever. And I I don't and, and I'll, I am trying to figure out then how do you turn that kind of sentiment and from people who would absolutely agree that this that the vaccine apartheid's a problem what does what does that the the pressure points look like that we can that we can p- press to actually get Canada to stop being a fucking shitty global actor in this and and I'm I'm kind of at a loss because like we have like we have not been good citizens like global citizens and the the, the boosters. I mean, yeah, the boosters are important for uh, they're certainly important for a subset of the population. But it seems to me that in Canada, we're doing the boosters just because we have all these extra doses and we can't get rid of them. And otherwise, they'll expire, which would look very politically bad. And I mean, it's just like more morally reprehensible. And so I don't know, Sandy, do you do you have any thoughts about how Canadians like should kind of kick themselves out of this reverie of like vaccine, this vaccine high (laughs) and figure out how to like, you know, actually force politicians to realize that there will be political consequences for not doing better globally and and, and not like advocating for these, uh, you know, IP waivers, which is still an issue it just seems like it's just too easy for Canadians to go, oh, it just sucks. But, oh, I'm getting my third dose tomorrow. And I'm not, I'm not talking about people who need that third dose. But there's going to be a lot of people who don't, quote, unquote, need it, who will be lining up for it because otherwise it's going to go in the garbage.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're asking me this question and I'm thinking about how, um, like, other analogies, other um, uh, social issues that... Uh, You know, you might hear the average person say that they're against such things, but are happy to just, you know, um, continue on as though nothing's happening. And the thing that um, I'm really thinking about is um, how our food gets to our tables and um, migrant workers. And if we use that as as an example, um, one, what we'll know is that it's going to be very, very difficult for the average Canadian, it's going to be very, very difficult for for organizers to get the average Canadian to care. Um, what we know about that experience is that uh, generally, when things don't affect um, or are not directly seen um, by the you know the dominant average Canadian, and it benefits them, then it's not something we're willing to have serious conversations about. Um, in public. Uh, but, you know, what I will also say is that there have been organizers, um, certainly in groups like Justice for Migrant Workers and UFCW, who have um, done a very good job of organizing and bringing these issues to light. And so, you know, again, as so often it is the answer in this show, I think, that those of us um, who uh, can really, who really understand this issue and how um, this sort of uh, vaccine apartheid is not, it's harming us in addition to harming um, the, uh, the folks um, overseas in these um, exploited uh, states. Uh, it's going to take organization to make people turn ahead to this and to not simply, you know, and I'm not advocating for people to like not take boosters, but I mean, to not simply take the booster and then put it out of one's mind.
1: And more globally, I think we have to refuse politician logic that tries to get us all to just argue around the margins of the vaccine mandate debate. I think that We the fact that there's no clear plan from any politician about what they're going to do when we hit that ceiling of who's going to get vaccinated, and who's not going to get vaccinated is pretty damning. It's 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 unacceptable. It's clear that it's going to happen. It's going to happen before the the virus goes away. Right. Because we were all hoping, of course, the virus was going to go away by the time we hit 60 percent or 70 percent or 75 percent. Virus is still here. Sure, there's still people that will get vaccinated and public health needs to, to do the work to, to reach those people. But politicians cannot keep saying the vaccine is going to be what saves us because it's not. Just like like just like COVID was the spark and, and actually all of the conditions from precarious work to poverty to racism and colonization, those are the real issues. The vaccine is the same thing. It's not going to solve COVID. It's, it's not going to solve the underlying issues. It's just going to hopefully, you know, make a virus a little bit better. And it has definitely done that. But we need to force politicians to give us their answers. What is the plan when you back off the vaccine mandate and there's absolutely no rational way to explain to someone that a nurse doesn't need to be vaccinated, but you have to be vaccinated to go see Dune? Like, that's not something you can make sense of. So how do they imagine society with a vaccinated, unvaccinated population that's still going to be around, that's still going to be posing a threat to people. We just can't allow them to just be like, oh, no, vaccine mandates, because then we just fight amongst ourselves and it doesn't actually go anywhere.
0: Nora, before we finish tonight, I, I just think there's something that should be front page news that isn't front page news that I want our listeners to know. Oh, wow. Go ahead. Iqaluit still doesn't have clean water. What? It has been, yeah, it is now entering its second month. And a capital city in one of the wealthiest states in the entire world still does not have clean water. Not just a boil advisory because it's you can't boil this and make it right. There is still a fuel issue with the water, and it, it seems as though the military wasn't able to stop that.